0: Welcome to Episode 76 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government uh, uh, I'm joined today by our guest commentators, uh, a uh, uh, husband and wife duo in cybersecurity and privacy, Annie Anton and Peter Swire, uh, who we'll be hearing from shortly, uh, both uh, uh, cybersecurity uh, experts uh, and both professors at Georgia Institute of Technology. And by Michael Vattis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department and now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. By Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation uh, and Bitcoin regulation at Steptoe and Johnson, Uh, Alan Cohn, who is the head of strategy for DHS and second in charge in my old policy office at DHS and is now of counsel at Steptoe. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and as I sometimes say, therefore the child of a broken marriage, uh, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So why don't we get started uh, uh, First, uh, kind of cleaning up after uh, all the Snowden and USA Freedom stuff, uh, um, the litigation continues. I'm kind of astonished, uh, uh, Michael, that we're seeing, and Jason, for that matter, that we're seeing as many forlorn, lost hope pieces of uh, litigation as we're seeing. Uh, uh, the ACLU and Larry Klayman, I guess it shouldn't be a surprise, just won't give up.
1: Well, you still got these cases out there. Um, you know, the is still uh, awaiting a decision from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, he won in the district court, and the government appealed, and the government recently filed a supplemental brief uh, basically alerting the court to the the passage of the USA Freedom Act, the, the Second Circuit's uh, ruling, uh, striking down the program on statutory grounds, uh, and uh, also the uh, FISA court's recent decision to allow the program to continue during this interim uh, period that was permitted by the USA Freedom Act. And it, the government's basic goal is to uh, get the D.C. Circuit not to issue an injunction and, and to lift the injunction that had been issued but that stayed by the district court. So I see it more as just kind of tying up loose ends and trying to avoid... A fiasco in the next few months of this interim period, where they'd have to turn on, turn off the program that they just turned on again.
0: I guess that's right. I, I guess that you, you, since there's no decision, it's not a surprise that everybody would be doing a supplemental briefing. But at this point, uh, all of the original briefing is totally overtaken by events.
1: That's right. Well, uh, well it is and it isn't because in the D.C. Circuit, uh, the statutory. Uh, argument that the Second Circuit ruled on is not even before the court, because claimant, I think, just took those claims out and is went forward strictly on constitutional grounds. So uh, those constitutional arguments are still pertinent to, you know, during this interim period, at least. Claimant tries to argue that they, they also apply to the new program that will go into effect at the end of the year, and the government takes issue with that, but that's a whole different case. Uh, so I think we'd have to really see a, a different complaint if that we're going to go forward, but it's at least still a, a, a valid case until the end of November.
0: All right. And and, and we will. I mean, uh, don't say that uh, too loud because Larry Clayman is uh, almost certainly going to file another uh, uh, complaint because uh, 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 that's what he does for a living or maybe he, just as a hobby. Uh, what about uh, what about the ACLU up in the Second Circuit, Jason?
2: So the ACLU is trying to do both: uh, keep alive the statutory uh, arguments in its case before the Second Circuit, and uh, I think to, to inject some new life into the constitutional argument. The, you know, in early May, the Second Circuit ruled uh, on purely on statutory grounds, not constitutional grounds, that the language of the Patriot Act did not uh, authorize bulk collection under 215. And they said that if Congress wanted to authorize it, they would have done so explicitly, but they did not issue an injunction because at that time, discussions over the future of 215 were, were going on in Congress. And now Congress has acted with the USA Freedom Act and, uh, and the FISA Court, as Michael alluded to, said that, uh, Congress has effectively authorized the continuation of the program for 180 days. And the, and the ACU has gone back to the Second Circuit saying you have to issue an injunction because the authorization was was under the same language in the Patriot Act that you said didn't authorize the program in the first place. Oh, but that's stupid, isn't it? I mean, and by the way, it's still unconstitutional, so they're they're trying to pursue both. But
0: it, it, well, the constitutional argument's never been ruled on, so they're right. not just going to issue us right. an injunction there. And a large chunk of the Second Circuit's argument was, well, nobody knew when they voted on it what they were voting for, but that surely is so overtaken right. by events.
2: There can be no question that when they voted on the USA Freedom Act, they understood what they were voting on in the USA Freedom and,
0: and Act. Didn't they Send this back to Judge Pauly? I mean, I, I, how yes. does the Second Circuit just say, "Oh, we we woke up this morning feeling like an injunction, and so we're issuing one"? They have to get this back from it, Judge Pauly. No, exactly. So, I, you know, this this is one where no private lawyer that was uh, that had a real client would ever have filed this it seems to me that this is just the ACLU wasting paper and, and money uh, um but maybe it's good for for fundraising but otherwise it's just a, it's a preposterous legal theory
2: isn't it yeah, i don't think it's going anywhere yeah
0: all right uh okay so the other really fun uh, uh it, well it's becoming tragic uh, uh story here is hacking team uh, which continues to uh Throw off uh, interesting stories as a result of the compromise of four hundred gigabytes of data uh, uh, Alan, I uh, assume you 've been following this uh, uh, some of the Some of the stuff that has happened very recently suggests that uh, um, uh, the Government believes that the um, compromise was really an inside job. I thought that was uh, much more plausible than the idea that hacking team was just hacked is that uh, uh, hacking team had somebody on the inside I mean obviously they 're pretty good hackers uh, and uh, uh, they were able to look make it look like a hack and uh, compromise all the data
3: yes you 've got to imagine so uh that a that a group as sophisticated seemingly as hacking team would not be able to be easily infiltrated from the outside in the way that seems to be described um i was interested if you found any
0: more uh interesting emails in the uh in the trove as you went through no i i haven't been back i, I uh you know i i did go there once and uh search for Wassenaar, but i I really felt like i had to take a shower immediately afterwards uh, cuz you're using wikileaks uh uh, uh uh privacy invading uh technology to do it uh, um but i know that uh, there have been some stories suggesting uh, uh the story i i i found most interesting is that uh, there's a lot of hyperventilating about the possibility that uh, Hacking Team was talking to some drone companies about uh, using drones to hack Wi-Fi, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, they were going to do a man-in-the-middle attack, on, and the, uh, install their little piece of hardware on it, and that way they could fly it over your house uh, and pick up your wifi, get between you and your own wifi and, uh, uh, extract your, uh, your logon credentials. Uh, uh that didn't, never went anywhere, but it was certainly imaginative. Well, it seems
3: mm-hmm. like, uh, Hacking Team seems to be showing up, uh, in all of the different types of things that people had been imagining that a group like Hacking Team could possibly do. Yeah. It does seem like this is going to be, this may be the final demise of Flash, though, as a result of well, that. thank
0: God for that. Oh, jeez, I hate Flash. Uh, yeah. it, uh, and uh, I've got it turned off. Uh, but then I just, <clears throat> for the longest time, the sites just didn't work. They didn't even tell you, by the way, you've turned off Flash, so we don't work. You just couldn't figure out what was going on on the site. But right. that's getting better as people realize that uh, a lot of us are turning it off.
3: I think we're on a path to uh, to a, to some type of replacement solution for that. So.
0: Yeah, uh, and you know, on the whole, I I, I once said about um, defense contracts, especially in the intelligence area, that uh, you couldn't go wrong assuming that the Defense Department would fund anything that made somebody who was a teenage, teenager. Uh, uh, 20 years ago say, oh, that would be so cool if we could do that. Uh, and I, I think hacking team was, was running around the world saying, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? And, 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 and trying to make people's, uh, law enforcement's dreams come true. Uh, um, uh, I did see, there's, there's now been a suicide, uh, out of this, A South Korean, uh, uh, guy, uh, in, intelligence agent, uh, accused of using hacking team for, um, domestic spying. Uh, denied it and then killed himself. Uh uh so uh there's there is a uh a human cost to this uh hack and to the um, assumption, the kind of quick assumption that uh, any hacking team contract was being misused. Um all right. Uh well from that uh I guess we ought to move to something that is straight law. I, I see FERC is proposing to uh um, update uh, its astonishingly outdated uh, uh, cybersecurity rules, the CIP rules, um, and to get into supply chain practices. Alan, did you look at that?
3: I did, um, and it seems like a wise thing. It also seems to follow a general theme of that the independent regulatory authorities are going to be much more aggressive with their regulatory authorities in setting standards for cybersecurity than some of the executive branch agencies that have regulatory authority. Well, you saw
0: that in government, didn't you? <laughs> well, yes,
3: and it, it reminded me of the the, the debates and discussions with uh, with FERC and others, staring at at folks like DHS and saying, "What, what, what are you doing?" So,
0: right, because well, DHS was saying, "Oh, well, we'll give them tea, we'll give them cookies, maybe they'll all come sing kumbaya and 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 adopt cybersecurity." And the the regulators say, "No, they they adopt it when we tell them they, they will, or we'll, we'll punish them."
3: Exactly. And so here you see FERC. Um, well in the way that they do uh proposing to approve uh the North American Emergency Electric Reliability Corporation the NERC um, right. updates to the the sip controls particularly focusing on um no, closing vulnerabilities associated with supply chain vendors uh but also looking at uh mitigating risks to the electric system particularly as they rego- as they relate to destruction degradation uh, or otherwise rendering those services unavailable, as opposed to the straight kind of data breach um, discussions that, that 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 we typically have.
0: Yeah. So I talked to, to somebody on speaking of supply, supply chain and uh, electric power, who told me that uh, we're already starting to see a kind of bifurcation, or worse, of uh, uh, IT technology in this field in particular that. Uh, um, no one in the West wants to buy industrial control system chips that were made in China, and no one in China wants to buy industrial control system chips that were made outside China. Um, and so we may already be seeing a kind of division of the marketplace based on lack of trust.
3: Yes, and where where, an, a vulnerability actually or perceived could really touch a nerve, could really hurt, uh, An entity, yeah, uh, or a country.
0: All right, keep staying with law and uh, away from uh, uh, the lighter stuff. uh, I see that um, HIPAA has claimed another victim. Is that right, Jason?
2: It is. This victim is the Steward Healthcare System, which is a hospital system in Boston, uh, which operates uh, Saint Elizabeth's Medical Center. Which if I I don't know if I'm remembering correctly, but I thought it was the inspiration for St. Elsewhere, but I, I may or may not be right about that. That's right, the uh, the basis for St. Allegis in St. Right. Uh, Elsewhere. Well, among whatever other issues were going on at the hospital that led to it being a TV show, they um, they had a, a number of privacy violations that they have not officially admitted to, but they have reached a settlement with HHS over, and under the terms of the settlement, St. Elizabeth's uh, has to pay over $218,000 and take corrective action to address some uh, HIPAA violations related to, to unsecured patient data. They among other things, there was medical information for about 500 patients uh, that was just sitting uh, unsecured in an internet-based sharing platform for patient information. And then it's remarkable how often this is a feature of these HIPAA cases. There was unsecured patient information on an employee's laptop, um, the personal laptop, and on a thumb drive that affected nearly 600 people. Um, there's no allegations there was an actual compromise of the data, and the patients have already been notified, and now that the, the – uh, HHS is going to monitor the corrective action the, the hospital has to report to them uh, over the course of a year and get the changes uh, in their practices and procedures approved. Um, as I said, it's remarkable how often hospitals have information of the greatest sensitivity on employee laptops, but even more, it's, uh should be a wake-up call to, as hospitals increasingly are using online portals for doctors and patients to share and access information that those You know, you you can't implement those unless you you've paid appropriate attention to making them secure.
0: Yeah, Uh, and yet, you know, when I call to find out whether my uh, daughter's in the hospital, they won't tell me. Uh, So, uh, HIPAA manages to uh, uh, screw up the lives of uh, people who actually want information and ought to get it. Uh, And at the same time, I guess in this case, the. uh they must have found out because of, self, of a self-disclosure, right?
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think it was, a, it was a, an insider who actually disclosed uh, uh, or made okay. the first allegation. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, Michael, did you have something you wanted to add to that one?
1: Uh, well, you know, you guys love making fun of the FTC, but I think it, it bears uh, mentioning that um, you know, or emphasizing what Jason said a minute ago, which is that there's no evidence that this data was ever accessed by anybody who was not authorized to access it, and yet HHS jumped all over the hospital and fined them over two hundred thousand dollars uh, You see at least usually it act takes action when there's been a breach
0: i think you 're right yeah. i think I think you could you could you could make a case that the hhs 's office of civil rights uh, is the most uh, humorless and extreme of all the enforcers in the uh, privacy world to uh, um, eh, we ought to have a contest we, we should we should allow our listeners to vote on on who is the uh, uh least um, uh, sensible of the privacy regulators and uh,
1: and, and the, the other aspect is in most of these cases it's the hospital itself that reported the matter to HHS. Right. Even when there hasn't been a breach. And then they get slammed. So
0: yeah. it's... Well, uh, and, and, and we all remember that, uh, uh, Kathleen Sebelius won the Privacy Hypocrite of the Year, uh, award when I gave out Privies, uh, uh for having set up, uh, healthcare.org, uh, without any of the security measures that they had been punishing hospitals for not having, uh, I, and, uh, uh that, um, uh, it, it, so it's not just that they're extreme regulators, it's they're uh, hypocrites about it, too. I, I,
1: just for the record, I think you had the sole uh, vote in that. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I, I did not have the sole vote. I, I did have the sole uh, nomination authority. But thereafter, the uh, the voting was taken over, I think, by the Tea Party. It's true. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, Russia now has a right to be forgotten or that they've uh that Putin has signed. I think it takes effect uh at the beginning of next year. Uh uh Michael uh uh they 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 paired it back from the most extreme version that passed. Uh did they did they turn it into something that's just a clone of Europe's?
1: You know, it's hard to say. I think I think the details still need to be worked out. Um uh, in some ways, it might be broader. I mean, it, it, it requires search engines to remove links to websites that contain inaccurate, outdated, or unlawfully released personal information. Uh, it's not clear if there is an exception for um, information about public figures or matters of public interest. The, the, the main exception is for information about criminal offenses. Uh, so I think we'll have to see how broadly this is... Um, Applied and interpreted once it goes into effect uh, on
0: january one all right well and, I, and in a sad milestone uh, uh, Google announced that it had uh, um now taken down a million links. There's a million things on the Internet that we're not allowed to know, or at least if we live in uh, Europe and and if the Article 29 Working Party uh, has its way, if you live in the United States or anywhere else in the world, uh, we'll never be allowed to know because we won't be able to find the data. Um, so a sad milestone indeed. Uh, um, I got a, a, a some listener feedback from from Robert Horn, who sent me um, uh, a response to um, my complaint that the, uh, Tony Scott the CTO was engaged in privacy theater in saying well, we're all going uh, all all u s government agencies are going to use uh, uh, HTTPS or uh, SSL or TLS whatever you want to call it, uh, securing the communications uh, and i, I I mocked uh, the the uh, thing because it's the, the measure because it seemed to me that 98% of what you view when you go to a website owned by the U.S. government is not particularly sensitive and if it were if somebody were watching where you went once you got to irs.gov it wouldn't be particularly interesting or uh, privacy invasive so that they were wasting their uh, money rushing to uh to do s s l um, uh, robert horn writes to say you know there 's a second value to doing t l s and that is that uh, you know what website or you can know what website you're actually hooking up to. And uh, so in case the hacking team had a drone flying over your uh, house uh, and they wanted to do a man-in-the-middle attack, they wouldn't be able to tell you, here's the certificate for the site you're going to on sec- uh, in a secure fashion, they'd be giving you a different certificate and uh, you'd be able to identify that, which I thought was, was a fair point. Uh, I'm not sure it's a reason for any one uh, agency to do this because um, it, what it assumes is that everybody has done it. Because if one person doesn't do it and you go to that site, as long as Drudge doesn't do it, uh, when I go to Drudge, I'm subject to a man-in-the-middle attack and... uh if um if somebody's flying over my house with a drone uh, they're going to uh look for the first unsecured uh, connection and get in the middle of that one so um unless you're going to be very very disciplined about where you will and won't go I'm not sure how much help you're going to get from this https uh, but I I thought it was fair to uh, uh, his his point was a fair one so I'm uh passing it on uh, uh also in listener feedback we got a um, uh a pointer to a uh, an iSight partners uh, report that says you remember when Central Command was hacked by the Cyber Caliphate uh, their their website was uh, uh hacked uh, everybody said well that's embarrassing uh, and uh uh ISIS is getting better at this uh, and uh, it turns out I see Eyesight iSight partners has said uh, we don't think it was ISIS at all with we- think it was the Russians. Uh, They found connections between the uh, infrastructure that was used by the cyber caliphate and that was used by uh, 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 a a Russian uh, hacking band. Uh, uh, State Department has also said we don't think it was ISIS. Uh, And so uh, what we're seeing now in a world where attribution is getting more common, we're now starting to see people thinking that uh spoofing attribution uh is worth trying and uh naturally the russians are uh uh leaders in that um, and then finally uh uh i guess uh, i'll ask jason to take this one uh, uh for our this week in prurient cybersecurity uh, uh there's been a big and dangerous new hack right
2: well actually i thought for once someone other than me was going to take the prurient interest when i think this was out all right uh, well, speaking of when you might want to use spoofing
3: attribution, um, so Ash, uh, the Ashley Madison website uh, was hacked. Ashley Madison is apparently an online site where uh, you can find married people interested in having an affair. In fact, uh, their tagline, which they have on the website, is life is short, have an affair.
2: So, <laughs> nice.
3: Okay. So hackers apparently broke into their data repository, stole the names and other identifying information for people registered with the site, including apparently people who paid an extra fee for a service that would permanently delete their name and other identifying information from Ashley Madison's records. And so the people who did this, who who said that they did this, said they did it for two reasons. Number one, uh, because they were mad at Ashley Madison's privacy policies, uh-huh. and to prove that they weren't actually deleting the information that they said that they were, and then second, uh, to tr- to to get Ashley, the the people who sponsored this site, to actually take it down.
0: Wow, that's, uh, this, and, uh, have we started to see, I mean, uh, is WikiLeaks gonna put this up or is, was Julian Assange a, uh, a member of Ashley Madison?
3: I don't know, this might be a crisis of, uh, of conscious moments, uh, <laughs> as we pull the, as they pull the room, uh, for, for members. will oh, tell you me, what. It
0: seems to me this
1: would be a lot more valuable to Chinese intelligence than the OPM information.
2: That's <laughs> probably right.
1: I'm sure there are a lot of uh, uh senior government officials who haven't revealed everything on their SF86s but you know there might be a treasure trove on them on Ashley Madison if, if this is a real thing this, this site
2: and this may be the one time a plaintiff's lawyer cannot find someone who's willing to be a name plaintiff <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right well I, I I think we should end on that note uh, um, and uh, uh move on to our discussion with uh, Annie and Peter Okay, we are here, uh, with, uh, Peter Swire and Annie Anton, uh, I, uh, both of whom, I have, uh, have, well let me give you their bios and then we'll come talk about, uh, what they've been doing recently. Uh, Peter Swire has been a law professor on and off, uh, uh, or at least a professor and talking about law, uh, for on and off, uh, really since I met you in the early 90s, right, when we were debating and arguing and going on long jogs together. If I remember right. Yes. Yep. Uh and uh, uh, was uh first basically the first privacy privacy officer uh, although you had it was like chief counselor chief for privacy, privacy for privacy for it was OMB that uh, but basically it was a CPO type job of the mm-hmm. first uh, uh federal CPO and then you did the the HIPAA rules if I remember right uh uh, and um what uh, uh, you got called back into government after doing those things till when in the wake of the Snowden? Uh, right. I, I, I had before. a
4: I had a, a tour of duty uh, in the National Economic Council under Larry That's Summers right. in it's, nine and ten, doing other issues. There was a financial completely crisis. away from privacy at all, right? Basically, I was I showed up at some meetings, but it was there was this financial crisis at the time. And then in uh, in August of 2013, the president appointed me as one of the five members of the review group. And this is post
0: Snowden. It's a basically a post Snowden. Oh my God! What do we have to do different now after Snowden? And there were uh, 30 recommendations or more. 46. 46. Yeah. 46. Way uh, too many, according to Annie. It yes. was it was it was a very long report. Uh, and uh, yes. Uh, um, I, my memory was about half of them were pretty easy to say yes to uh and and then it got harder and harder and uh veering toward uh, uh you know utterly unacceptable
4: well some, some were rejected outright um quite a few were adopted we were told uh, when the president made his speech in January of 2014 that 70% were being accepted in letter or in spirit right. which as government work goes is you know that's not that's, bad. that's pretty good and then the USA freedom act Really, all the major provisions in the Act are traceable to language in the report. They're consistent.
0: Ah, yes, I think that's probably right. That's probably right. Uh, probably why I don't like the Act. <laughs> okay. Uh, and um, uh, you're now at Georgia Tech? For uh, the last
4: two years, I'm at Georgia Tech as a professor in the business school with appointments in computing and public policy. They don't have a law school there. So based in Atlanta and working on privacy and
0: cyber stuff. Very cool. And Annie Anton uh, is the chair of what, Interactive Computing? The School
5: of Interactive Computing at
0: Uh, Georgia Tech right and um a, you've been advising governments dod uh private companies uh the dhs uh, data privacy and whatever uh, uh board uh, the
5: well, data, data privacy and integrity advisory committee
0: yes uh um, and uh, and writing on privacy uh you know kind of how to extract meaning from privacy statements uh, using automated tools things like that right, right?
5: since uh, i've been doing that since about the late 1990s, and I've been advising government since around mid 2000s. So,
0: um, the, the one thing that's notable is uh, you're both scholars of security and privacy and married to each other.
5: Indeed, we are.
0: It's very cool. It's very cool. <laughs> you, you, you are the first family of cybersecurity. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, I, uh, but, um, it, we ought to talk some substance. I, um, I thought your um, your discussion of 215 and the USA Freedom Act was really interesting. Uh, um, uh, you really believed that we should get this data out of the hands of the government and leave it with the phone companies, which is what USA Freedom did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and... The, there are enormous costs to doing that, right? Uh, it, uh, the uh, the data doesn't get saved as long. Uh, it you know, might be saved for 18 months. It's certainly not going to be five, saved for five years. It's not in a format. That it's you, up to the companies how long they save it. Exactly. And uh, it, it, by and large, it doesn't look like they're keeping it more than 18 months and maybe less. Um, so that's... That that is one thing that uh, one problem with the uh, uh, the, the approach that uh, uh, USA Freedom takes. But uh, it it also seems to me that uh, USA Freedom uh, um, essentially requires the government to go to multiple phone companies to get the same data. Don't Doesn't it?
4: Well, so I I think that the bulk collection that that we were concerned about. First of all, there was the whole statutory question of getting all the domestic phone records under your foreign intelligence powers. Uh, so, so there's a sort of foreign and domestic mess in the statutory language. The concern that I highlight a lot is that when you have a secret government database, which is what it was or designed to be, um, and uh, you can say, and we had a bunch of rules around its access, right. but the secret government database, if next Tuesday something happens, including the bosses just decided they want to do something different, you can have mission creep, you can have expansion of how it gets used, and we don't find out from the outside so so the the having the secrecy in government without some layer of people from the
0: outside who can basically help to blow the whistle but you had did you-, you you had the uh the fisa court which was capable of blowing the whistle you had uh inspectors general uh you had the oversight committees well at the There's time, time you didn't ha- could- you had the fisa court only in a
4: limited sense first they had they were approving a program but the actual access to
0: it was being done without a case-by-case access to the FISA court. Yeah, but then you, you, you also had the Justice Department, you had the uh, uh, NSA General Counsel's Office, all of whom were overseeing how the program was being carried out and alert for abuses. Well,
4: th- this is where you and I have talked about these things before. You, you come to some judgment in a democracy about how much you want to have the secret database where the general citizenry doesn't know about it, um, and what the sort of long term over the decades risks are that come with that and and I think part of where I lean on the privacy side is to to be c- very cautious about that kind of hidden inside massive databases and when mission creep happens you don 't find out
0: so well, let me let me ask annie uh, uh what's your sense about the uh u uh, s a freedom and getting rid of the two fifteen uh database
5: so this funny enough, is one of those places where Peter and I have uh, disagreed. So uh, I thought that it shouldn't be shut down. It's now no longer a secret database. Everyone knows about it. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think that pushing all of that back to the phone companies means that now, as you mentioned, Stuart, Mm -hmm. you have to get a court order and go to all of the different phone companies takes a lot longer to get that information
0: and you have to and go you, to them you have to go to them with your list of all the places all the phone com, uh, phone numbers that you are watching for terrorist activity all around the world you basically share your crown jewels with right. every phone company that you want to get data from you mean the people with clearances who are working with you in the phone company well if they if, if they that's certainly true for big phone companies. For small phone companies, you, what do you do, just give up? Oh, too small, no no, no clearances. So well, as, I guess I so, won't find out anything.
5: So as a technologist, I think the, the issue that was interesting here is it's a debate about collection versus use. Yeah. And there's no question that tons of information is being collected everywhere, and so we're just not going to get around that. So now if that's the case, let's really have oversight on the usage of that data. And that's why I felt that it should stay at the NSA, and that we should just, if people wanted more oversight, provide more oversight. If you want court orders to be able to do the queries, have court orders to do the queries. But the system worked, and now that's been broken. And so I, I just don't, I don't see that we are at any advantage now.
4: What is the advantage of not collecting it? Uh, well, one of the advantages is that that periodically democracy rears its head in the surveillance space. So in Watergate. Um, there was the Church Commission. People were really surprised when the when the curtain came up about what was being done. I think after Snowden, people were really surprised again yes. a lot of years later mm-hmm. absolutely and and so you you have to come to some basic judgment about ratifying all the things that have been done or there's some things you change. And I think think that there had been a huge expansion after 9-11, after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that a correction was due, and especially the correction because it was such a surprise, because what we thought of as a foreign mission, foreign intelligence mission, was being used in the domestic area, and that's the moment when you most worry about democracy and the continued rule of law. Is that when you have really large collections of domestic information about political opponents and everyone else, we found no evidence that was being used, but that's where the, that's, that's what the risks are. And we're building an architecture just like a constitution for that. And so it's not that we found instances of particular abuses. The love int was a tiny, tiny fraction of things. It's that the architecture was the wrong architecture. And, um, and and also
5: But but when but when you change the architecture by putting that information back at the telephone companies and you now have to get information from all of the telephone companies, that data is not as rich. But You're I but not the architecture
4: point and I don't know if we were going to talk maybe about the information assurance director, if sure. I can move to that. One of our other recommendations, and another area where Andy and I have disagreed is, the review group said that there's the signals intelligence, let's find out what the world's doing side of the NSA. And they also have the Information Assurance Directorate, which is basically defense, which is protecting the federal government systems and providing a defensive role. And, and we said we thought that there should be a split between those two that offense was gonna win over defense in the internal equities process in the NSA, and that, that we had seen a tilt in that direction over a period of years so that anything that could be collected was being collected. So we made that recommendation, but the president disagreed. And, uh, and so the IAD stays part of NSA. Um but, but my own view was that when there was changes when there were things of this magnitude that were outside of what our political deal had been as a country, that there deserved to be some significant changes, in part to send a message to the NSA for the next ten or twenty or thirty years to really be in sync with the democracy and so I think mindful this is of
0: what's <laughs> exactly wrong with that report is that it basically said we would like to have a really risk averse intelligence community, in particular like NSA to be really risk averse. Going to punish them randomly. So why don't we just take the information assurance division away from them? Because that'll teach them that we, you know, we're in control and they're not. Uh, and and I—that I, strikes me. But, as, the, but the randomness, I, I, you know, the randomness
4: wasn't. We didn't think random. So the. Uh, One of the big themes of the report was that the offense had gotten ahead of the defense when it came to to national security decisions in the the intelligence community. We were worried about encryption. We were worried about zero days. We were worried about IAD. In all these places, we have a critical infrastructure that's overwhelmingly in the private sector, and we were worried that the whole system was being run to optimize for surveillance rather than for all the many things we want out of our information technology
0: system. So I think we probably need some a computerized method of of extracting an opportunity for Annie to speak out of this uh, (laughs) dialogue.
5: I'd just like to note that you learn defense by doing offense. And so that was my main reason why I I feel that having them both at the NSA is vitally important. The people at the NSA, um, my understanding is that they rotate. And so you rotate... And you spend a few years in offense, you spend a few years in defense, you go back to offense, and that's how they become real subject matter experts and really great at defending our country.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's certainly true. You can't if you don't play both sides, you never appreciate uh, uh, the fine uh, points of uh, either defense right. or offense. You
5: have to know what you're defending against, and right. it's the offense that knows. What
0: but I have to say, I, I I used to say when I was at uh, NSA that. Uh, um, the offense guys had all the best parties. <laughs>
4: well, you, there's the moments of of joy when you find something you're trying to find. Defense is much less satisfying. It's like, did you lock every door and window?
0: Right, it's, 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 it's just is. not as much fun as you're, you're very careful. Exactly. No, I think that's, uh, <laughs> uh, that's exactly right. You know, they've done these studies of the personalities of football players. And the personality of people who play linebacker is you're jumping around. I just want to screw something up. I'm going to screw him up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and you, you're, you're constantly improvising and constantly jumping around. And the guys on the offensive line who are really playing defense, they just want to sit there. Nobody should move me. I'm just going to be here, and the people behind me, they're going to be safe. <laughs> uh, and uh, certainly, you know, if you're going to do cybersecurity, it helps to have a high, high tolerance for obeying the rules over and over again, no matter how boring it is. Yeah. Right.
5: Well, in software engineering, the best testers are those people with very destructive personalities. Yes, yes. Right? And the best security engineers, the ones who are very meticulous and want to make sure that you know there are no back doors, right? No well, vulnerabilities. Well,
0: that's great. Now, it's, uh, the, the, the other topic that we talked about some was... Uh, um, Your effort to kind of define um, privacy statements uh, and um, the fact that you can't really read a privacy statement uh, more than two lines in without finding the word "reasonable." uh, uh, How do you? Especially the law. Yeah. How so? How do you? code for uh, take, take a law take a privacy statement and turn it into code when it's got these mushy words like reasonable
5: uh, with great difficulty so we've, we've done a lot of work over the years trying to find ways to help software engineers understand what laws they have to comply with right and um, figuring out ways to parse the law to find where where's the intentional ambiguity which I would say that both you and Peter agree is good to have in the law
0: well, it's sometimes necessary to get the exactly. law passed. <laughs>
5: well, it's necessary to get the law passed, and also sometimes you don't know what's reasonable at the time, and you right. want the course to decide later. So I, I've come to, to accept and understand that. Um, but there's a lot of unintentional ambiguity. And um, things like, you know, you have to notify someone, we'll notify them how, when, where, by, by how much time. Um, and these are simple things that we can't test to. And there are... They are ambiguities that were not really intended to be decided later in the court, basically. And so, and, and Peter, although he may not admit it now, has in the past acknowledged that those kinds of ambiguities do make it more difficult for engineers to develop software that complies with law.
0: Was he so, was he like dating you when he was admitting it? No, <laughs> it was very,
5: very, very long ago. Very long ago. So. Uh, when we were uh, first looking at HIPAA, the HIPAA privacy rule, and we were, uh-huh. uh, consulting him as an expert, obviously, on the HIPAA privacy rule.
4: Right? We were co-authors long before we were a couple, so that was... Uh,
3: Absolutely, that was, oh, that's was great.
4: Just, uh, you know, I think that, that I have, teaching at Georgia Tech, where it's, it's mostly engineers and a lot of computer scientists, I have come to appreciate how hard it is for the engineer to walk up to a, a, a rule that says reasonable security practices... Without sort of doing a, a spock you know minds you know right. going on the fritz it 's just it 's very difficult to encounter that so, some some of the ambiguities are intentional because the rule lasts for ten years and things change or because there 's a thousand different industries there were over two million covered entities in HIPAA when HIPAA went into effect, and that variety of circumstances can 't get written out in code for two million different settings so that's that 's where I think. Annie, over time, has come to see, well, at least there's a a, a reason for this crazy word, reasonable. I think the harder thing to – one place that's been harder to agree on is there's a sort of messiness to the legislative process and to some extent the regulatory process. And so under the realities of that system, you end up doing compromises and drafting things that are done for the reasons of getting it passed through Congress. And if you have a sort of technocratic, right-it-clean kind of approach, you sort of can't believe the things that result. There was one statute I
0: taught in legislation where the phone number of a staffer got codified in the U.S. Code. And it's just a sign. I, 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 I vividly remember going through the legislative history and seeing a heading in the legislative history report that said, Suggested Legislative History.
5: <laughs> so, so, and, and that's
0: pretty frustrating to an engineer who actually wants to, to,
4: to write code to match something that's supposed to be authoritative.
5: So there are a few um, of my former students who've done really interesting work trying to help software engineers grapple with, with the law. And so Travis Rowe did a lot of work on how to use description logic to be able to represent the law, to be able to uh, guarantee that your software requirements comply with the law. Um, Jeremy Maxwell did a lot of work on how do you handle all these cross-references across the laws because you maybe think you're complying with HIPAA, but it turns out that HIPAA references the Privacy Act, and the Privacy Act conflicts with the duration of the amount of time that you're supposed to keep records on someone. And so um, with Jeremy, Peter and I wrote a paper on uh, developing heuristics to help engineers figure out when when you take a conservative approach, when you take a more um, aggressive approach, and when you consult a lawyer. Right. And trying to figure out ways that software engineers can become a little more self-reliant without having to, to always go to the lawyer is very helpful. And then another student, Aaron Massey, did some work on... Uh, empirical studies to see whether software engineers are capable of determining whether a software requirement complies with the law or not. Right. And what he found is that they are woefully ill-prepared and not ready and unable to determine whether a, a requirement complies with the law. Yeah. And so that tells us that we have to do a better job at training software engineers to be able to make that kind of a determination.
0: I think that makes sense. You know, I, I, I used to say when I was at NSA, I went in as general counsel and I I, I about six months in, somebody said, how do you like it? And I said, I don't know what's worse. Having an engineer tell me what the law is. Or going back, doing the research, and finding out he's right. Uh, you know, they, it is possible to do it. It, it, it is. The, it's the inclination of the engineer to take all the rules that govern uh, the, their space and to turn them into uh, yes/no statements, essentially. Uh, and uh, um, and you can do that for an awful lot of it. And if you do that in a disciplined, thoughtful way, you're going to turn up all the ambiguities or most of the ambiguities.
5: So one of the things that Travis and I learned very early on is that every right that's expressed in the law is not balanced by an obligation by the, from the other court. But that when there is a right that's balanced with an obligation, for instance, you have the right to, in HIPAA, to request a full accounting of disclosures for your PHI. Right. But, and there is an obligation for the covered entity to provide you with that full accounting but there are many other rights that do not have a countering obligation. So as a software engineer, if we can develop tools that help us just look at the obligations that we have to satisfy,
0: so I hear, that let me makes it well, more let, efficient. Me, let me push on that because, yes, you have an obligation to provide uh, data when somebody asks for it, um, but that does not actually bring to light. If you just code that in, that doesn't bring to light like, the biggest problem with that, which is that you don't know who this person is who's asking.
5: Well, that's a separate issue. The, right, software, but, the software requirement for that specific obligation is that then I have to make sure that I have auditing in place in my system so that every time there is disclosure, I make a note of that. Where and yeah, when your personal health information I, went to Blue Cross Blue Shield to pay your...
0: But it would uh, be very easy to say, okay, the, the rule is when you get the request, you give the data, and that would be wrong, right? Because you need actually, to, the to the, the hard part is thinking... How might somebody scam this system and what do I have to do to prevent it's not them not, from scamming? But
5: the, but the obligation isn't to provide the data.
0: It's, it's the, the obligation tell, to, pr-
5: it's to provide a list of to whom you have provided the data. I see.
4: Yes. Okay. But you're also making a point about authentication. Yes. Which but is that the, would be, that's fine, but that would be in Annie's world, I think, in a different box that's than right. the box about what the accounting part is requiring. Yes. Okay. Right. Right, okay.
0: So I are uh, running uh uh low on time. I uh, I just I I have to ask though. Do you like talk about this over drinks over dinner? Do you do you have like cybersecurity debates, seminars, okay. uh, uh uh should you should you be like um uh, recording your uh, 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 your quarrel your so that we can be informed. <laughs> but about we, we have we have
4: selected issues. some of the areas we just agreed to feature for you. Today. Yes, yes. Let me just say that when I was in the review group and I had classified briefings, I was not saying at home, "Oh, listen to these cool briefings
5: I got today." <laughs>
4: I will. I can just assure you that was not part of part of what was. Happening.
5: So when I was at NC State, I developed a course called uh, Privacy Technology Policy and Law. Mm-hmm. And I get all these legal questions, and I say that's a great question, and I'm going to bring a lawyer in, and we'll ask them, right? Because I didn't know how to answer them. When I got to Georgia Tech, I co-taught that class with Aaron Massey, one of my former students, and we it was a great class. Really enjoyed it. But then the next year, Peter joined the faculty at Georgia Tech, and I thanked Aaron for his service, and now I get to co-teach the class with my husband, because right, he comes cheaper. He's cheaper. <laughs>
4: Uh, that's right, and, and we get um, to drive back. We get to drive to class in the HOV lane. I mean, that's go, right.
0: right. Yes, no, that's but, not, that's right. And you say, you know, I, dear, I I I need help with the legal concepts here, and I'll do the dishes if I, if you. Uh, this is this is terrific.
5: But so think, that gives us a forum to discuss uh, privacy and debate privacy issues, and I think a very constructive way, in and in a way that really helps students learn that. Um, It's okay to not always agree on everything, but it's about really understanding the issues and understanding the different points of view. And
0: I have the perfect way to start those conversations once a week you should turn on the uh your mp3 uh bluetooth enabled radio and play the podcast and one of you is bound to disagree with everything <laughs> you hear and that'll spur the I, discussion I, I You mean the person you. asking the questions in my case That's what she means. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly right. listen um uh, we usually ask uh, our guests if they've got any upcoming events publications uh, things they um, wanna, uh, uh, so, want to uh plug so um
5: so, we are working on a very interesting paper on internet access in Cuba and the lack thereof. So, um,
0: yes, we, never, we t- never talked about this. Your right. parents fled Cuba. It's yes. uh, kind of in the dead of night, if I remember right. Yes, yeah, so uh,
5: my, my parents uh, are very proud to be uh, Americans now, and that their experience in Cuba is really informed in my position on civil liberties, and including privacy especially, and surveillance. And so, but it's also given me a real strong sense of national security. Yeah. And so that's, that's informed my national security uh, values, if you will.
4: And and I have a paper coming up that Stuart, you're going to be commenting on at the New America Foundation later in July. Yes, that's right. It's called the Declining Half Life Declining Half Life of Secrets in the Future of Signals Intelligence. And I have no idea what your views are, but you'll
0: you'll get to see the paper and comment on it. I, I I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's yeah. like, it's like next week, right? I think it's next Friday actually. Yes. Okay. so uh, the podcast will be out by then, and okay. uh, everybody should uh, rush down to uh, find out what the current half life of secrets is. It's less than it was. <laughs> it's less than it was. Oh, and yes. and and if you plan
4: on doing skulldudgery and thinking it will stay secret forever, it's a lot riskier to do that than it would have been
0: 50 years ago. All right. Thank you to Michael Battis, Jason Weinstein, uh, Annie Anton, Peter Swire, and Alan Cohn. Uh, um, it was a, a pleasure uh, I, for our listeners. Uh, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback uh, at steptoe.com uh, or leave a message at 202 862 5785. We're getting valuable feedback these days, so um, keep it up. Uh, This has been Episode 76 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week in our last episode, before we go on hiatus in August, uh, we'll be joined by Bruce Andrews, the Deputy Secretary of Commerce. Uh, We'll be talking about NTIA, NIST, uh, and export controls. Uh, So it should be A fascinating uh, half hour with him. We hope you'll join us then as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.